This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Having been introduced to the work of the philosopher Gilles Deleuze through the writing of feminist theorists like Elizabeth Gross and Rosie Bredotti, and having read him concurrently with French feminists like Luce Aragray and Julia Kristeva, it never occurred to me to read Deleuze as articulating a philosophical practice of disembodied thinking. In fact, I have always read Deleuze and Deleuze and Guattari as post-phenomenologists. In Deleuze and Guattari's view, language unfolds in the pragmatic context of embodied speakers, and philosophy as a practice of thinking can only unfold in the context of embodied thinkers situated in the social fields of specific times and places. Even if thinking can and should go beyond the confines of good sense and common sense, it can only emerge in empirical thought movements. In addition, Deleuze and Deleuze and Guattari promote thinking embodiment not simply in terms of the particularity of specific thinkers with bodies informed by the physiological, cultural, social, and political aspects of particular times and places, but in terms of a durational whole comprising what manifests to conscious awareness as well as a pure past or virtual excess insisting in that awareness rather than a chronological time that can be thought of as a string of static states. Although they conceive language as always related to pragmatic situations, they refuse to give it primacy. Linguistic meaning is just one factor in a heterogeneous mix of forces that come together in the pragmatic situations of thinking, speaking, writing, listening, and eating. Their work suggests that just as one could be caught up in linguistic cliches, so one could be caught up in perceptual cliches, and that such cliches are informed by habitually repeating patterns that could be transformed when opened up to what exceeds that patterning. In Deleuze's view, thinking is part of life a philosophy that would freeze thinking into propositions that it proclaims to be timelessly true is a philosophy that becomes increasingly out of step with the need to make sense of the life in which we are immersed. Just as life cannot be reduced to the forms we perceive at a given moment, so the wisdom philosophy seeks cannot be reduced to propositions that fixate moments of thinking. Life is always more than what is manifest to our conscious awareness. It is also the intensities that are moving what is manifest into new forms, the imperceptible forces insisting in the most fleeting moment that are even now moving whatever is towards something else. As someone who had been through some of the sex wars of 80s feminism, with its heated debates about the way even one's sexuality and sexual desire might be affected by one's cultural, social, and political situation, this approach held the appeal of a non-dogmatic way of bringing the body into play without reifying the past experiences of specific bodies into rules of identity to which feminists had to ascribe in order to be real feminists. Furthermore, its insistence that philosophical thinking go beyond the perceptual as well as conceptual cliches of past thinking 
holds promise in a contemporary context where we need to reconceive our relations to non-human others as well as our places within the ecosystems we inhabit. Deleuze conceives a philosophy as a practice that not only allows us to pursue ideas in a carefully consistent manner, but also allows the force of living to reverberate through thinking in a way that can transform and even shatter the personal self of the embodied philosopher. His characterizations of the durational whole, intimated, for example, by the time image of modern cinema and of what he calls sensation in Francis Bacon, Bacon's paintings and fragments of pure time in Marcel Proust, all evoke a notion of time that entails starting from our embodied situation in order to touch upon something in that situation that opens us to an outside beyond anything we have yet perceived, felt, or thought. In what follows, I will elaborate Deleuze and Guattari's characterization of philosophy as a practice of creating concepts in light of Deleuze's work. We will find that according to their characterization, concepts are not verified with reference to states of affairs, but rather express events. Creating concepts institutes a pre-philosophical plane of eminence comprising the non-conceptual understandings that created concepts entail. In A Thousand Plateaus, Deleuze and Guattari approvingly state with respect to J.L. Austin's pragmatic approach to language, quote, the meaning and syntax of language can no longer be defined independently of the speech acts they presuppose, end quote. Deleuze and Guattari's theory of language will ultimately challenge traditional notions of the speaking subject by considering speech acts as effects of what they call collective assemblages of enunciation, ways of meaning making with implicit rules that change over time, rather than of the particular subjects making the speech acts. Furthermore, in their book, What is Philosophy?, they characterize philosophy as a practice that along with creating concepts, creates what they call conceptual personae in, in defiance of the personal identities of embodied philosophers. But those conceptual personae, like the planes of eminence, the creating of concepts institute, can emerge only in the empirical movements of actual thinking that unfold over time. I hope to clarify how this notion of philosophical practice, even as it challenges traditional notions of embodied agency, still draws upon and extends the phenomenological attentiveness to lived experience. In addition, I elaborate what this practice entails for Deleuze with reference to Bergson's notion of intuition, a notion that suggests that philosophical practice engage a durational temporality. And I consider how this practice might relate to art and science, the two other thought forms to which Deleuze and Guattari compare the thought form of philosophy in their book, What is Philosophy? It is through culturally shared non-philosophical presuppositions that circulate through cultural thought forms like art, science, and philosophy that humanity unfolds its ongoing attunements to life. To counter the notion of a philosophical concept as a word or term with a fixed meaning that can be cashed out in a set of propositions, 
Deleuze posits it as an event. A concept may be attributable to specific states of affairs, but the sense of the concept is always an excess of any given state of affairs. Not only are there always other states of affairs to which it may apply, but the meanings of the concept will reverberate differently in keeping with shifts in the internal relations of its components and its relations to other concepts. Deleuze characterizes concepts in a way that not only attempts to shake us out of the ruts of conventional movements of thought, but also conceives them as integrally related to, and yet in excess of, the empirical movements of thinking that actualize them. Deleuze's conception of the time image that appears in modern cinema presents some aspects of what he thinks philosophical thinking can do. While the perspective of the camera can be taken up by the spectator as a gaze with which the spectator can identify, cinema is also capable of going beyond any one gaze and by virtue of deliberately playing with the irrational cuts made possible by film, evoking a multiplicity of perspectives that cannot be assimilated into one rational whole. Cinema is an art form that can access what Deleuze calls the virtual by going beyond any one perspective in order to intimate a whole of multiple perspectives that are no longer totalizable. In his book, Cinema II, Deleuze states that Orson Welles' film, Citizen Kane, presented, quote, the first occasion on which a direct time image was seen in the cinema, end quote. The film revolves around the question of the significance of the word rosebud, the last word Cain utters before he dies. When we see the image of the burning sled with the rosebud insignia at the end of the film, it turns out that knowing the answer to the question posed at the film's beginning by the reporters wanting to sum up Cain's life, although in one sense answered, is unanswerable. We now know that the word refers to a sled he had as a young boy, a sled related to a time before he was torn away from his mother and father after his mother decides to take an advantage of an offer to give him the privileged life his own family cannot. And yet, no one except the audience sees the burning sled, and so the answer burns up right before our eyes, leaving it forever beyond the grasp of the characters of the film. As Deleuze comments, it is, quote, an image which burns independently, is totally pointless and of interest to no one. It thereby casts suspicion on all the sheets of past which have been evoked by the various characters, end quote. Each of the disparate recollections given by the people interviewed in the film who have known Cain at various times of his life evokes a duration of Cain's life that although connected to other durations, ultimately does not cohere with those durations into one narrative. Quote, it is true that these regions of past have a chronological course, which is that of the former presence to which they refer. But if this course can easily be upset, it is precisely because in themselves and in relation to the actual present where the quests begin, Cain dead, they are all coexisting, each containing the whole of Cain's life in one form or another." End quote. Rather than a path that forks, the film presents its life as a heterogeneous durational whole. It thus gives us a sense of Cain's complexity, 
the richness and mystery of being human, a sense of what might have been, unfoldings that materialized as well as movement toward unfoldings that were lost, where no one decision definitively determined his life, but where the fragments form a whole that interconnect in complicated ways. If language can never completely capture truth in relation to life, it is because truth unfolds in time, and time entails the continual unfolding of the new as well as repetition of patterns familiar to us due to our experience with the past. If we consider the truth of this moment here and now, this moment of life that I am living, we know that we can never do it justice. Any articulation of this moment must fail because this moment is always unfolding into the next, and even as we attempt to represent it, it is turning into something else. Furthermore, the way that the past inflects the present shifts along with its unfolding. The perspectives on Citizen Kane presented by the film ultimately do not add up. They comprise incompossible perspectives on a man and his life that evoke the heterogeneous nature of the durational whole connecting all those perspectives. Just as the camera shots of a film can be cut together in a way that unsettles conventional perspectives, so can the components of meaning of a concept be brought together in a way that provokes new thought movements. A series of such concepts act as the singularities of a plane of imminence that can contour novel ways of accessing the durational whole of linguistic meaning. While spinning out linguistic associations in isolation from embodiment will be, more likely than not, sterile, boring, or stupid, it is the making of new configurations of meaning constituting singularities of a novel plane of imminence that can shift one's perspective in a way that transforms the self and one's lived experience. It is by attending to lived experience not in terms of the already perceived and already thought, but in terms of the imperceptible and the outside of thought that a plane of imminence can be formed that can precipitate productive thinking and enlivened responses to one's embodied situation. According to Henri Bergson, who is an important influence in Deleuze's work, in order for conscious perception to be that of a living organism able to act in ways that will ensure its survival, it must suppress the greater part of the complicated enmeshment of material life in order to discern what is of practical interest from the perspective of a particular organism with particular needs. In his book, Matter and Memory, Bergson considers the relationship of material objects to our perceptions of them. He conceives a material object apart from our perception of that object as an image among a universe of images, all of which are material points without perspective that implicate and impact one another. He contrasts, quote, the image which I call a material object, end quote, to the represented image that is a conscious perception of that material object. Quote, that which distinguishes it as a present image, as an objective reality from a represented image is the necessity which obliges it to act through every one of its points upon all the points of all other images 
to transmit the whole of what it receives, to oppose to every action an equal and contrary reaction, to be, in short, merely a road by which pass in every direction the modifications propagated throughout the immensity of the universe." End quote. As Aliyah Alsaji puts it, such, quote, an unperceived and unperceiving point virtually implies the rest of the dynamic and interpenetrating universe in its complexity and richness with its infinite and incompossible relations. Its vision is a non-selective and indifferent kind which registers everything but discerns nothing, end quote. A conscious perspective requires, quote, a process that limits and diminishes the virtual whole. It is in this way that representation and consciousness come about." End quote. If we consider Bergson's comparison of a material image to the represented image of conscious perception, we can see that anything that we can call a perspective is in a sense haunted by interpenetrating influences that always exceed those that emerge in relation to the needs of a particular organism. The force of these influences constitutes a kind of ontological unconscious that is the virtual reality inflecting any actualized present. In his book, Creative Evolution, Bergson lays out a notion of intuition that can go beyond the intelligence of a conscious perspective premised on maintaining survival. Intuition, by thinking duration, goes beyond the perceptions of a living organism to intuit something of the virtual implications of the interpenetrating universe passing through any perspective. It is this kind of thinking that the creation of concepts can provoke. The futility of attempting to capture life with a static image is apparent when one stares at a photograph of a loved one who has passed away. Words likewise inevitably fail to capture the living presence of one who is no longer with us. What truth about a loved one refuses distillation into a form we can grasp even when she or he is gone? It is toward art that we may look to capture something of the truth of concrete forms of life. Bergson's critique of intellectual reason suggests that human beings tend to engage in intellectual analysis. That is, we consider what is in terms of a series of static states, rather than considering what is in terms of becoming and durational wholes. This kind of analysis has proved immensely beneficial to our survival as a species. Quote, to act and to know that we are acting, to come into touch with reality and even to live it, but only in the measure in which it concerns the work that is being accomplished and the furrow that is being plowed. Such is the function of human intelligence." End quote. But according to Bergson, to understand life, we need to go beyond human intelligence. Quote, For the effort we make to transcend the pure understanding introduces us into that more vast something out of which our understanding is cut and from which it has detached itself." End quote. The durational whole of the universe is comprised of the durations of the multiple bodies making it up. Each body has a perspective formed by how life means to that particular body and the actions those meanings prompt. These perspectives form worlds within the world, smaller durations in the durational whole, 
that refract only that part of the whole that mean to it and that unfold in terms of those meanings in complicated interaction with other durations. In Deleuze's view, modern cinema as a contemporary form of cultural thought has, with the time image, moved toward what in Bergsonian terms we might call intuition. Bacon and Proust contribute to other examples I will now briefly consider of aesthetic forms of cultural thought that move beyond an intellectual approach to life in order to intuit something about life that may be currently inexpressible. In his book on the painter Francis Bacon, The Logic of Sensation, Deleuze distinguishes between sensation and perception. Sensation refers to a kind of experience that is imperceptible, since it refers to forces impinging on unreflective awareness and also entailing our own impingement on what's around us that affect how we experience the world but that lie just beyond the edges of what we can pin down in perception stable enough to describe. According to Deleuze and Guattari, just as philosophy create concepts that, quote, go beyond everyday opinions, end quote, so does art compose percepts and affects that surpass ordinary perceptions and affections. Monuments of sensation that intimate a visceral becoming other, that haunts our conscious awareness without becoming overtly manifest. In The Logic of Sensation, Deleuze describes how Bacon talks about capturing a likeness in a portrait that goes beyond appearance and evokes the intensity of the real. Instead of doing portraits that rest with the particular form of a particular human, with the form of a particular human being as she is present in appearance at a given point in time, Bacon hints at the forces making up that human being forces that are always in the process of unfolding. And here it would be great to have <laughs> a, you know, a, an image, but <laughs> hopefully it's, some of you are familiar with Francis Bacon's twisty sort of um, uh, representations of uh, the human figure. Thus, Bacon moves beyond the conventions of perception and through his paintings evokes sensation, an experience of visceral affect inarticulable in words and eluding familiar forms of perception, and instead evoking a sense of discomfort and unfamiliarity that allows us to experience something about those human beings in the human condition that we had not before. Proust, according to Deleuze and Guattari's account in What is Philosophy, by opening up an aesthetic articulation of the world of the novel through an exploration into the depth of events, similarly investigates the virtual past of those events in a way that shows us the intensity of time. Quote, we attain to the percept and the affect only as to autonomous and sufficient beings that no longer owe anything to those who experience or have experienced them. Cambrai, the town evoked in Proust's famous recounting of tasting a Madeleine, like it never was, is or will be lived, Cambrai as cathedral or monument, end quote. The series of novels making up In Search of Lost Time evokes life in terms of a memory that exceeds any one perspective or a multiplicity of perspectives that can be correlated into one homogenous whole and instead posits what in his books Proust and Signs Deleuze calls fragments that cannot be put together and instead are put alongside one another. Quote, 
By setting fragments into fragments, Proust finds the means of making us contemplate them all, but without reference to a unity from which they might derive or which itself would derive from them." End quote. These fragments cannot be assimilated to one totalizable whole because they compose different fragments of duration that could unfold in ways that are incompatible with other durations. Because how each fragment unfolds with respect to other fragments exerts its own effects, there is no way to organize them into a linear chain of cause and effect. Instead, each fragment could set off a whole series of unfoldings, each of which would interact with other series in unpredictable ways. Deleuze, with his characterization of concepts as events, indicates something of the past of meaning-making as it informs its present evolution. While the cinematic time image intimates the intensities that haunt the specific moment in space and time rendered by the cinematic shot, the notions of sensation and fragment indicate percepts and affects intimating resonances never actually lived. The philosopher's concept, by virtue of its access to a stratigraphic time in which all words are connected to all other words, intimates the resonances, echoes, and intensities that can incite novel trajectories of meaning out of the transcendental field of sense that conditions specific acts of meaning. Quote, philosophical time is a grandiose time of coexistence that does not exclude the before and after, but superimposes them in a stratigraphic order. Philosophy is becoming, not history, is the coexistence of claims, not the succession of systems." End quote. The configurations of meaning produced in philosophical thinking could always have played out otherwise with different inflections, thus actualizing other nuances in connection with the discursive and non-discursive practices informing the social field from which those meanings emerge. Concepts are stabilized out of the chaotic possibilities of sense, not through reference to specific states of affairs, but rather through the resonance of the internal components of concepts and of the external relations the concepts have with other concepts. Quote, the concept is defined by its consistency, its endoconsistency and exoconsistency, but it has no reference. It is self-referential. It posits itself and its object at the same time as it is created." End quote. The self-referential connections that form within and between concepts constitute new forms of meaning that allow one to leave behind the constraints of a conventional perspective on life and yet to stabilize meaning out of the chaotic possibilities thereby released. Philosophical activity, by consistently attending to shifts in meaning, settles on some ways meaning in particular times and places can unfold, given its past, in keeping with the problems life poses. For Deleuze, philosophical thinking can break with ritualized ways of thinking by attending to the virtual echoes that inevitably emerge as we articulate our responses to life. This practice is not only inevitably open-ended, but also creatively accesses the ontological past as it inflects the present. Just as concepts like that of the time image, sensation, and the fragment can be inspired by aesthetic thought, so can philosophical practice be inspired by scientific thought. 
whereas science, according to Deleuze and Guattari's characterizations, organizes its perspective by anchoring meaning in repeatable reference points, and art organizes its perspective by anchoring meaning in aesthetic objects that comprise intimations of the becoming other inherent to concrete moments. Philosophy organizes its perspective by anchoring meaning in concepts drawn from life that are singularities in further movements of thinking. Quote, through concepts, philosophy continually extracts a consistent event from the state of affairs, a smile without the cat, as it were, whereas through functions, science continually actualizes the event in a state of affairs, thing, or body that can be referred to, end quote. Philosophical thinking deliberately opens up the gap between representable perceptions and responses, thus intimating the unrepresentable becoming of a meanwhile where, quote, nothing happens and yet everything changes, end quote. If, as Bergson suggests, the conscious awareness of sentient organisms entails filtering the mutually implicating forces of a durational whole in keeping with the pragmatic needs of specific organisms, then philosophical practice entails dilating our perspective beyond the immediate needs of specific organisms, as well as possibly humanity as a whole. Insofar as concept creation institutes planes of imminence informed by shifts in other cultural forms of thought, for example, those of art and science, as well as the lived experience of embodied philosophers. Philosophical practice precipitates thinking that evolves in keeping with embodied experience. Opening up our lived experience through the perspectives provided by created concepts, concepts that act as events or virtual singularities instituting planes of imminence that can shift not only our perspective, but the very way we experience the world can help us find new ways of relating to the world and others. Concepts like the time image of modern cinema, a notion of sensation derived from Bacon's paintings, a Proustian conception of fragments as bits of pure time from which can flow new ways of thinking and experiencing the world, or, as we shall see, a notion of animal worlds derived from the biologist Jakob von Uxkol adhere in a plane of imminence informed by intuitions of a durational whole. Quote, if philosophy begins with the creation of concepts, then the plane of imminence must be regarded as pre-philosophical. It is presupposed not in the way that one concept may refer to others, but in the way that concepts themselves refers to a non-conceptual understanding, end quote. Uxkull, cited by Deleuze and Guattari in A Thousand Plateaus, presents a notion of the Umwelt that envisions organisms as inhabiting worlds that are like soap bubbles. Each organism interprets its world, that is, quote, filled with the perceptions which it alone knows, end quote. For Uxkull, nature is a symphony composed through the interpretations emerging from these disparate worlds. Each bubble is defined by what is of interest from that organism's perspective and thus is a pure bit of time, a fragment or a duration constituting its own world of meaning. And yet, from a Bergsonian perspective, 
each such world also extends into the pure past or ontological unconscious of the durational whole. If we think of how time is refracted through each perspective, with memory or a pure past being brought to bear on the present in terms of the needs of the organism constituting a given perspective, then we can see how the forward movement or unfolding of all those perspectives will play out in implication and complication with one another. Each body thus constitutes a center of meaning from which responses to the world unfolds. These centers have a relative autonomy. They are not merely automatic relays, but introduce the indetermination of the interpretive response of a particular perspective to what is always a unique situation. It is out of this strange mixture of heterogeneous perspectives that a reality emerges. Each perspective is a refraction of the whole that reverberates with that particular body's capacity to affect and be affected. Bergson's notion of intuition suggests that although we may never know what it is like to be a non-human animal or a blade of grass, Intuition, by virtue of considering the durations of our own lived experience and their inextricable entanglement with other durations, can intimate their presence. This suggests that we do not have to remain trapped in the forms our embodiment and psychic selves have already taken, but that we can unfold in concert with the symphony of life by unfolding connections to other durations not yet pursued. Although pursuing all such connections could only unravel us, Organizing new encounters with life could allow us to develop new ways of existing with other durations that would transform our relations to the world and others, both human and non-human, as well as ourselves. Concepts or singularities constituting a plane of eminence that is a Bergsonian intuition of a durational whole, inexpressible and yet productive. Philosophical practice ultimately opens up the personal lived experience of a human subject invested in its physical and psychic survival to a durational whole that comprises multiple perspectives intimating durations beyond that of the immediate awareness of the embodied philosopher. Bergson's notion of the mutually implicating durations of the universe suggests the reverberation of all life in the duration of one embodied existence. Because the embodied philosopher is a dynamic duration who becomes in and through other becomings, becomings other that unfold in and through the becomings accessible to lived experience are available to her. Since there is no determinant boundary between one becoming and another, and since each becoming is implicated with others in ways that ultimately include the entire universe, the durational whole is intuitable by an organism able to arrest the automatic reactions premised upon organic and psychic survival in order to think something beyond itself. Just as the time image, by virtue of presenting shots cut together in defiance of a homogeneously conceived time, intimates a durational whole of incompossible fragments, so can the creation of concepts dilate our embodied experience onto a pure past and ontological unconscious beyond the organic needs of one embodied existence or even that of humanity as a whole. Taking bodies in a very wide sense and considering bodies as forming larger bodies or assemblages within the durational whole 
suggests that the meaning or knowledge of existence is refracted through the myriad perspectives sustaining the bodies and subbodies making up the world. Thus, just as the time images of Citizen Kane intimate a heterogeneous duration formed of the varying perspectives converging in Kane's life, so are particular bodies composed of multiple bodies with their multiple and incompossible perspectives. Thus, even our own bodies are composed of the bodies with disparate perspectives of the subsystems of our organisms with the meanings and knowledge of an incompossible whole. It is from the virtual echoes of the durational whole of a body and of a life that a particular body and psychic self emerge. But the habitual patterns of living sustaining our survival as a unified organism quelled the dissonance of incompossible perspectives. Actualizing meanings that have already occurred would merely repeat instantiations of patterns that have already been lived. The philosophical practice of extracting events from lived experience brings together components of meaning into concepts that articulate some portion of the intensive excess of specific states of affairs, including those referred to by the functions of science or composed into the monuments of art in ways that open up new perspectives and ways of thinking. These thought movements are durations interconnected with other durations that can unfold into and through other movements of being with reverberating effects. Husserl and Heidegger are two phenomenologists who by virtue of describing lived experience as we experience it, arrive at different formulations of how and why that experience cannot be reduced to what actually appears. Husserl's notion of a nomadic object of an intentional act that can never be fully represented, or Heidegger's notion of being as a concealing, unconcealing that is never complete, both indicate the paradoxes that emerge in the phenomenological attentiveness to lived experience and how it means to us. The more carefully we attempt to describe lived experience, the more we are challenged towards something that is beyond or outside what we can represent about that experience. Although each, according to Deleuze, end up constraining this approach to the outside, Husserl, by constituting the nomadic object in terms of the intentionality of a transcendental ego, Heidegger through a notion of being towards death that emphasizes a consolidated life, it is the thinking from and through the embodied situation that allowed them to approach the outside. It seems to me that Deleuze continues this tradition and is thus an important resource for furthering projects like that of feminism and environmentalism that would bring into being enlivening articulation of marginalized forms of subjectivity by attending to lived experience in a non-dogmatic way. It is a paradox that even when philosophy is conceived as a set of timeless truths waiting to be discovered, it is never satisfied with its answers. Philosophy is an open-ended process in which one must inevitably question the truths one has arrived at and continue the process of thinking. Deleuze's conception of philosophy as a thought form that creates concepts entails the notion of a concept as an event rather than a fixed truth. A concept as an event of thought is a virtual multiplicity whose internal links among components of meaning and external links to other concepts make up a plane of imminence that evokes the restless movement of thinking as a generative process. 
Philosophy, unlike art, does not look at the becoming of specific things, for example, the human body of a portrait. But according to Deleuze, it, like art, provides access to a chaos uncontainable within categories we have applied to past events. Philosophy, like art and science, is a distinctive form of thought that creatively grapples with life's novelty. Our contemporary situation, one of rapid change and unprecedented problems of almost unthinkable scale, is perhaps one that demands this Deleuzean conception. Only a philosophy that includes a temporal as well as spatial dimension can speak to a thinking that arises from and keeps pace with the accelerating speed of life's movement. If the works of art produced by artists such as Bacon and Proust move us, it is because they are able to render into aesthetic form some aspect of reality that was previously imperceptible to us, but with which we resonate. If science is able to have effective results, it is because it is able to create functions that allow us to predict what may happen in ways that have useful consequences for creatures like ourselves. If philosophy is able to create concepts that excite us, it is because it resonates with the problems we face in ways that enliven our thinking and provoke new solutions. Although some strands of phenomenology may claim a foundational form of privilege that suggests that it can and should ground other forms of cultural thought, Deleuze and Guattari's post-phenomenological stance suggests that none of the three thought forms they describe should be privileged. Instead, they are three distinct and yet interrelating approaches to human thinking about life. But neither should science be the thought form that is the final court of appeal for questions about truth and reality. All three thought forms approach the paradoxical nature of lived experience in different ways. While science may be more effective in supplying pragmatic answers to questions about how human organisms can affect change in the world, it does so by reducing the paradoxical complexities of living to rule-bound functions. And while art can approach the singular truths of concrete life, its truths resonate in ways that are specific to the subjectivities of the people it affects. It is philosophy that through experimentation with the events that can be extracted from the real can create concepts that provoke and stabilize new perspectives. Quote, Precisely because the plane of imminence is pre-philosophical and does not immediately take effect with concepts, it implies a sort of groping experimentation and its layout resorts to measures that are not very respectable, rational, or reasonable. These measures belong to the order of dreams, of pathological processes, esoteric experiences, drunkenness, and excess. We head for the horizon on the plane of imminence, and we return with bloodshot eyes, yet they are the eyes of the mind. To think is always to follow the witch's flight. One does not think without becoming something else, something that does not think, an animal, a molecule, a particle, and that comes back to thought and revives it." End quote. Attending to the paradoxical nature of lived experience reveals that whatever truths we put forward, they can never exhaust the complexity of the durations with which we reverberate. In the very process of elaborating our truths, we move beyond them, extending our conscious awareness of the world around us and the, and the perspectives of that world beyond our own transforms the very nature of our lived experience as human beings. 
It is this movement beyond our immediate concerns that can move us toward new ways of unfolding with, rather than in <coughs> opposition to, the durations beyond our own. Thank you. Are you with a tough one? So, if uh, following Deleuze's influence by Ferrisson on intuition, uh, you could say that art is an attempt to expand the parameters of what we experience in the world beyond what's immediately available to us. So it, it, it gives us a, a cut, a choice, a uh, take on how it is that what is immediately present to us, or, or apparently immediately present to us, and includes a host of other connections, reverberations across a number of different fields, a number of different objects. And uh, film appears to give this to us, although I think we anymore are more adept than Deleuze may have been at seeing these fragmented images as being continuous. Yeah. Uh, but apart from that, yeah. the, uh, if that's what art is doing, and uh, uh, Bacon's one example, uh, Jeff Koons is another example, uh, the person who designed the uh, cardboard container that my toothpaste comes in is another example, okay? Yeah. Uh, how is it that Deleuze can, if he does, say that there is commercial art and truly creative art? There's, there's real art, and then there's art that doesn't do that. There's art that, that answers to the, the slower and the more base circuits of uh, cerebral links uh, the molecular speeds are are not quite up to up to snuff. Uh, and the question I have is because when Deleuze was writing the Cimabon, it was about the same time the high-low show was happening in at MoMA. And that was the, the show where they uh, questioned the distinction between high art and low art. And part of the argument there was that what was so-called low art was only thought to be low from the point of view of a certain refined perspective. And I wonder if Deleuze is, is caught up in that. Uh, he seems to have a, a, a very dim appreciation for art that is not of a certain standard. And I've always been concerned about that. Um, well, and the same goes for philosophy, right? <laughs> uh, that a lot of it is just debate or, or just opinion being recycled. And so, um, uh, like a philosophical conference, I mean, I'm not sure, you know, would be the high form of philosophy for him. So, I mean, I'm not sure what your question is. I mean, I think that um, it's, w one thing that I would say is that I'm not sure uh, that it's um, uh, exactly a high-low distinction and, you know, some art, form can, some art forms can do this for us and others can't because that sort of takes out of play that art happens in this richer context where lots of other stuff might be going on. Uh, so um, uh, I wouldn't want to say that the art does something to me, right? Something happens when I come together with a piece of art uh, in this richer context where these different kinds of connections can be made. So, so when art, the, the first place where this happens, right, is an artist makes a piece. Yeah. Let's, let's, go, let's use painting as an right. easy example. And the, 
the event of the painting is the way in which the artist creates something from material object, creates a, a saturation of percepts and affects right. that we then encounter, that perdures. I think he's very good about this. I can go see the Mona Lisa. It is the same materiality that was on that canvas however many hundreds of years ago. And yet, what he's saying is that art is giving us a window into the complex of reverberations that this material substance has had with other material substances. But there seem to be certain constellations of reverberations that he privileges over others. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, and that's where I would go next is that, yeah, I mean, I think that well, maybe how it's, how, how can he? How can he privilege certain constellations of reverberations over others? Ah, well, I would say that, um, uh, you know, he's very concerned about cliches of various sorts. And if he admires a painter like Bacon, it's because Bacon works so hard to get beyond the cliché. So uh, there is a sense in which what happens um, in art uh, and what happens uh, to human beings in terms of how they perceive is we're going to go to the, I mean, if we want to use this Bergsonian language to try and talk about this, we're going to go to the default mode of representations and uh, you know, intellectual analysis or, or you know, where we see things as uh, static things that we can talk about in terms of functions or rules of some sort, right? Uh, so we can go and experience an artwork in that way. And if it's not somehow um, opening up this other kind of space, uh, you know, again, using this kind of framework that I'm talking about here, the reverberations, then yeah, it's a, f it's a form of art that, that Deleuze won't have as much respect for. I think that's true. And that's, that's why well, I really worry about this. I mean, I chose Jeff Koons as a purposely because he's a, he's a really good cliche. Yeah, but so that, that I think though, but isn't that because of a context? And for example, if there are concepts that are opening up our way of going to that artwork and, and perceiving it in a different way, it could be that it opens up something. So it's not foregone you know, conclusion that uh, one kind of art couldn't uh, have this kind of effect. It really depends on a whole situation, right? I mean, so I think that you have to take that into account. Um, but certainly, like, like you're saying with the time image, yeah, once it gets done in a certain way, right, we're going to get used to it and we're going to be repeating that kind of experience uh, and it's going to be a similar kind of experience to other films we've seen like that. And once that happens, yeah, it's not doing that kind of, of opening up, and, right? Yeah, I mean, so, yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a little different from a high level, but yeah, I mean, Deleuze, I think, yeah, he was a snob in some ways. I think that's true. Oh, okay. <laughs> I agree. I grant you. In fact, some of the films he likes so much, I'm like, I can't even watch these films. So. <laughs> right, so. Yeah, anyone, anyone else? Yes, Justin. Um, I, I sort of Actually, that's a really great question. Um, 
And um, I think one thing to keep in, um, the first thing that came to my mind is that what's a cliche for me as a, as a teacher, because I've taught the material before, may not be a cliche to your student, right? And of course, that's when we, uh, it, it reverberates again for us, is when it really does open up a student's way of thinking in a way that, that hadn't been the case before. Um, so uh, it is a similar thing to the art, um, I think, that there is a sense in which any experience that starts repeating in terms of a pattern that you've already um, experienced is um, uh, prone to this kind of cliché. Uh, so this kind of process of turning into a cliché. And that's the worry. So um, I know for me, uh, and again, I'll go back to a situational thing, right? If I'm with a class, a new class, to see it happen, right? There's something that happens. You may go in and be really bored with what you're going to teach. Oh, God, I'm going to do, you know, Descartes yet again, right? Uh, and, and, and you may go in. And it may be really boring, and all the eyes glaze over, and, and nothing's happening. But uh, part of the practice of teaching, it seems to me, is to open up, is to make a situation in which those reverberations open up in some way. And so, you know, I mean, I'm sure uh, you all in, in whatever teaching you've done thus far have found that you're a performer when you're teaching, right? There's a kind of performance. And you might think of what Deleuze has to say about actors and in, in the logic of sense there, you know, that every, you're saying the same words, but there's something that it opens up. It's like uh, 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 you make an event happen where something reverberates in that that, that uh, wasn't um, necessarily apparent before you even went in and, and did that performance. But I think that's a really interesting question, yeah. My, my other thought about yeah. it was that um, when we try and embody things that I was thinking about as, as I, you know, looked at this paper um, was um, that it seems to me that some of the concepts that he's pulling from art and from cinema and from, you know, looks cool, that, that, that does create a plane of eminence, right? It's beginning to create a, a different way of thinking. I mean, you can see how they kind of cohere, right? You can see how those concepts sort of are building bridges to one another. And it seems to me that um, uh, that's part of what 
uh, is happening now, and, and you know, if Deleuze resonates in a certain way for, for um, some people, I think he's, he's sort of, you know, sort of touching upon a kind of way that thinking is, is changing. Um, so, for example, um, I saw this New York Times um, uh, uh, article the other day about polar bears. Um, and, you know, we think, okay, polar bears are losing their habitat and that's bad, but also geese are losing their habitat. Did anyone read this? And so it turns out that many more geese are flocking to one area that polar bears actually go to. So in fact, the polar bears are really making out there. They're getting all sorts of extra uh, uh, eggs and so forth that they wouldn't have otherwise. So, so what the article is saying about that is that, you know, we think that we can understand how an ecosystem, you know, how effects are bad, right? But, but it's really kind of unpredictable how these durations sort of interact with one another and how, you know, we can't tell how that's going to unfold. So I think what's interesting about that is that we're being forced in some ways to a different kind of way of thinking. One that does seem to me uh, to, to go with this kind of Bergsonian image that I was trying to get out. So, um, I, I, uh, so we have an automatic way of responding then in terms of this kind of intellectual analysis of sort of pinning things down. And what I would say to somebody who's just not seeing or not, I feel like they're not understanding what, what I'm trying to say is probably that they're assimilating it to a kind of past pattern, right? So how do you break through that pattern? How do you sort of get them out of that to be able to, you know, follow this other kind of set of singularities that's unfolding this other arc, you know, of thinking that maybe is a little bit different. Um, so it seems to me that one thing that is coming out here is that Deleuze is not thinking alone, right? He's thinking through and with other things that are happening. And so uh, this kind of plane of imminence is not something that he's creating as an individual or trying to communicate just as an individual. It's something that uh, uh, we all are, are part of in a way. Uh, right? So this notion of being one individual with a kind of thinking and I'm going to communicate this thought, uh, you know, up here and then, you know, communicate it to you and we can talk about how you've misunderstood me or, or whatever. I mean, certainly there are times when that happens, um, but I, I guess what I'm saying is that I think that part of what he's trying to get away from is being too, you know, in one head, communicating something to one person over here and then we have to fix it, right? Something is happening. We're experimenting. We're trying out stuff. Uh, we're trying to see if we can uh, kind of connect. And maybe, um, I mean, I'm certainly, you know, you know, having said all that, certainly I'm going to tell a student when they, you know, get it wrong that they're reading it, uh, you know, that I think they need to read more closely or read more carefully or that they're not listening well enough to what I'm saying and will keep trying to, to get, you know, uh, closer to what it, uh, to whatever it is we're thinking, we're trying to communicate. But Deleuze isn't that big on communication, right? I mean, the moment communication happens, it's been turned into, um, it's been assimilated, right? So um, it's more the connections that that he's interested in and how those connections can happen. I mean, so I loved ending with that quote <laughs> of philosophy, right? <laughs> Groping around, right? So that's what you guys are all, you know, learning how to do, right? Groping around, experimenting. One of the things that interested me in writing this 
uh, thinking about this stuff was, you know, we do seem to need to justify, you know, philosophy sometimes, right? Especially in a discipline that seems to want to uh, go to a scientific model often, you know, in terms of what it is we're supposed to be doing. Well, if philosophers are really scientists on some level, then we can justify our existence. And it seems to me what he's talking about here is really that we're trying to open up a space for thinking and sort of stabilize that space. And so it's through making those connections and through drawing from different things that are happening that come into you as an embodied philosopher that you're able to come up with these concepts that are almost like, you know, points that, that allow you to start making these bridges in ways that allow something else to unfold and that sort of gets people out of uh, an older way of thinking into uh, maybe something, uh, a kind of shift in thinking that, that maybe is happening right now uh, for, you know, many different reasons. That was a long answer to, yeah, but, but so some groping is perhaps useful. Well, yeah. It's, I'm going to talk about this in terms of, that you've not used, in terms of decharacterization and recharacterization. Okay. And getting back to the same point I was, I was getting at the beginning, because we, we, it's not all groping. Right, right, right. We, we, all, we have to touch down sometime. Yeah. And that touching down is not trivial. Right. Clichés are not, are not trivial. They're, yeah. they're there because they yeah. bind us together in certain ways. Yeah. Without that binding, without that re-territorialization, yeah. we don't get to grow. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's, yeah. and so I don't, I don't always feel that Deleuze is as honest about this as he might be. He yeah. tends to like to talk about the groping, about, and, and it's not, you don't create a planet moons, right? Planet moons is, is populated somehow by the way the recording surface functions relative to the connections you've made. Yeah. Uh, so it's not as if you, you go out and try to form a planet moon in this. You, right. you possess one like, ultimately because of all the things you've done. Right. But uh, that planet moons is, is going to be uh, populated with cliches as well. Right. And uh, so, so you do have to teach Descartes sometimes. Yeah. And you do have to just get that third meditation okay, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that is a basis for opening up the, the things that are outside of that limitation. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I do completely agree. And I, I think part of just going back to, yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. I, I think my, my concern is that we just feel like we have to drag others onto the planet that we created for ourselves or the experience or to attempt to engage or, you know, coordinate. I, I, or it was like on the one hand our own or on the other hand try and, try and break the habits of their own and where they're at. But maybe this is like, you know. I, it's like we're looking for a collective experience. We don't want to share this planet of imminence because that would imply that I have something that I want to share with you. I want to find a field where we can collectively explore a planet of imminence. Yeah. And that's... And you think that that's just No, I think that's... I think Dillis doesn't say as much about that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. yeah. I like that. I mean, that's... Yeah, I like that. Um, I think he does... Doesn't put enough uh, weight on, you know... Um, 
uh, teaching the cliches, right? That I, I totally agree with that. I think, you know, um, in my own work, I've, I've talked about, you know, those moments of re-territorialization or territorialization are, are crucial, are important, and he really minimizes those. So for a feminist, for example, that's a real issue. That's a problem. Uh, so I certainly, I think he sort of takes them for granted. I also think of him as, as speaking to a different time, you know, that... <laughs> Right, so uh, you know we're a little bit past that. We're in a, a little bit. You know, things are going too fast <laughs> at this point, right? So we've got to try and, and slow things down a little bit. So yeah, but I think those are points well taken. Yeah. I wanted to. There's kind of a question of the timing, and the example that you cited was the working well campaign, and the relationship, you know, precisely between the religious theorization of time and his thinking of history, particularly when it's regarding his own cinema. One very apparent contradiction is that he, he limits history of the time image precisely in order to show that the time image is a process of becoming that can't really be delimited. <coughs> and so how do you see his thinking of history relating to his thinking of, of time? And why is it that he gives us what appear to be time periods in history with the time period of the Venetian image, the time period of the time image? And then also pre-delimit cinema by saying that cinema, although it emerged as of 1895, was actually only came into its being in 1915 with the introduction of montage and moving camera. And so in that sense, there's actually also a, a, a very clear birth date to cinema as he understands it from cinema proper. And that there are seeds where he suggests that, well, the time image was already there prior to Orson Welles, but only in a very kind of potential form. And so I, I'm just curious to see what your thoughts are on so what appears to be at least the, the risk of a contradiction. Okay, so are you suggesting that because of the way he goes through the entire history in, in the cinema form, that that he, I'm not, I'm not sure I can. To, to put it more succinctly, yeah. it's that he gives us a periodic history that yeah. at least appears to, uh -huh. uh, in order to illustrate that time in a time image, in a way he's inviting us, I take it, to think, right. cannot be delimited, meaning that it is a constant process of becoming, and we need to think it in Bergsonian terms of what Bergson calls the religion. And so why can we delimit history and we cannot delimit time? Thank you. All right, I, I'm not positive I have your, your um, question, but um, I guess what comes to mind is that with the time image, I mean, duration can be accessed in this kind of view that I'm putting forward uh, in multiple ways, right? But one way that we can and do access it is with history. Um, I mean, so you can talk in terms of a chronology. Uh, so I'm not sure that I see that as being contradictory. Well, uh, let, let me phrase the question yeah. differently then. Why does Deleuze open up the preface and say this is not a history of things and insists on and then he gives a history, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I honestly, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I can't really speak to that. Uh, I think that's an interesting question. Um, right. I mean, to a certain extent, I see it overlapping with some of John's concerns earlier. Yeah. Uh, how can you delimit high out and low out? Uh, it's the whole question of delimitation. Um, yeah. How can you I also then delimit something like a time period? You mean say the time image started at this point? Yeah, with that it started with that particular film. Yeah, no, I don't think you can.
Uh, but I think he's talking about something that is to him a bit technical as well there, right? I mean, if he's using the time image. Uh, and also, if we've once we have the concept of a time image and we go back and look at other things, we're perceiving it differently. So, um, I mean, in that sense, uh, you know, there's going to be a different way of experiencing films after the time image. So, yeah, I think that's a complicated problem. I, I don't have a great uh, answer to it, but I think that um, that uh, that you can't just say, um, you know, even if he if he says it started with Orson Welles, that that can mean a lot of di <coughs> different things, and that probably it's not as stable a point in his thinking as you might think. Right, that if you go back and look at it from another perspective, you could talk about it differently after having had that uh, time period of, of those films that came after Orson Welles. Right? Yeah. You said it importantly, right, that this is not a theory about cinema, but about the concepts cinema gives rise to, uh -huh. which are themselves related to other concepts and other practices. So the concept of the time image really is his way of going back and saying time and philosophy changes after Kant. And that, so it's the, it's, he's not so concerned, I, I don't think anyway. I mean, yeah. If you read that, that one passage, uh, you lean on it hard as I tend to do. It's, it's not that he's trying to get into the theory of cinema, but yeah. finding in cinema a concept of time which has already, already been realized outside of cinema. But we just, it's just taking the cinema to, to make open it, it up to us. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That, that's, what he, that's what he says about the, I forget exactly what that is. But it's, it's, I mean, it goes back to, the time is on a joint. Yeah. It goes back to him. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I knew that I would get m myself into trouble by bringing up, you know, aesthetic, you know, because that's just not what I do. But, yeah. Um, uh, and science. I'm glad nobody uh, spoke up about the, sci the, the little character, you know, caricatures of science I threw in there. Because one could certainly, um, you know, uh, get me on that one as well, because they're, you know, they're just little crude things, yeah. I think it's very likely I've, I've misunderstood you, and I apologize, I think it's my fault. But you had mentioned, you said something about art, uh, the function of art in some ways is good art, I think John was hitting on what counts for good art, is to make, yes. perceptible and to make connections uh, of what is otherwise imperceptible to us. What do you make in a thousand photos, there's a chapter on, um, novellas, and there's one by Henry James, one by Fitzgerald, and one by a gentleman stuck the sea, his name I can't remember. And Deleuze and Guattari are interested in novellas as works of art in that they attempt to introduce uh, the imperceptible into literature, and they revolve around the question, what happened? Yeah. And like in, the, in James's story, for instance, it's, it's impossible, you can't figure out what actually took place between the Telegraph Girls, whose name we don't ever find out, and Everard and Lady Verdine. We don't know what took place between them. So do you see a change in, in Deleuze's thought later when the encounters with Dari and Mr. Sheffield, he becomes, does he become interested in actually the imperceptible that art can give rise to, or do you see? Uh, I, I guess I, why do you think that the, that this, are you saying that the way I was characterizing art here doesn't fit that? I mean, how? Yeah, but so so what are you saying is out of out of sync with that? If you see a movement in Deleuze's thought, you know, um, towards because in, in, in uh, 
guess a very cliched way of putting it would be that what they see the novellas as doing is uh, making perceptible the imperceptible, or that, that we can never really know what happened. Um, I was just wondering how you, you see their interest in novellas in relationship to the Well, I guess making perceptible what's imperceptible isn't, I mean, that's what I was talking about here. Right? I mean, and, and part of the, the notion of art, I mean, I think it comes out, this notion of, of making the perceptible imperceptible, I, that comes from a thousand plateaus as well as what is philosophy. So I'm not sure I see, um, but I'm, I'm probably misunderstanding what you're seeing is dif different. Well, I was wondering if the, if the function of art is to make, or concept is to make possible uh, new connections, to make uh, perceptible things that have been imperceptible. In a thousand plateaus, is Deleuze turning against that? So in some ways saying that the, the value, at least of as the novella as an art form, is that it, it, it takes a seemingly easily perceptible situation um, and a series of events and shows that it's, by the end, we're actually not sure what actually took place. And so it's, it, reverses the, it reverses the whole function of art. Um, so it makes the perceptible imperceptible. Is that what you're saying? Ah, okay, interesting. Okay, yeah, no, I never thought about that. Yeah, I, I'm not seeing myself a huge um, difference between, I mean, because a lot of the, this way of thinking of the, uh, the making um, uh, this kind of becoming other, you know, comes out in uh, that art can, can, can intimate this kind of visceral becoming other. Um, I take out of a thousand plateaus, but no, that's really interesting. I would have to go back and look at that to, to think about that. It, it, it doesn't seem to me to be a problem in the sense that making, making something perceptible, imperceptible, means to be um, uh, jolting you or maybe not, you know, or, or shifting you somehow out of seeing something in terms of perceptual cliches or in terms of something that you've seen before, right? So that doesn't seem to me on the face of it that different from rendering the imperceptible perceptible, but I would have to go back and look, all right? So that, that's really interesting, I, you know, so I would have to go back and look at those particular examples to see if I would think that there was something different going on there, but that's really interesting, yeah. Um. Piggybacking off of what John was asking about yeah. earlier with uh, specifically like points of re-territorialization uh -huh. that are necessary yeah. for these processes yeah. to be going on. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, um, I've the way I would, I've read A Thousand Plateaus and some of these other works that you were referencing quite a bit, um, I, I've been very interested in the points where they've discussed risk, like for yeah. instance, intoxication, yeah. it's a lot of like disclaimers and kind of warnings yes. in those sections. Yes. Um, yes. Art, uh, the artist's uh, creative experience kind of confronting chaos is also maybe another point. I mean, they, they yeah. like to, in my opinion, choose examples of like schizophrenia or something like they have our toe come up a lot of different right. places. Uh, Vince Van Gogh comes up. I was wondering, um, because I think it's very interesting that you were talking about Deleuze and Guattari in terms of uh, philosophical practice and um, yeah. like this ethics or something that could be going on in creating these concepts. Uh, but I, I guess I didn't hear so much about these risks, maybe, this yeah. risk-taking or the that dangers. And I was yeah. wondering, um, if, like, yeah. I guess, was that a conscious decision of yours to maybe omit 
Well, I guess because you hear it a lot, yeah. I mean, you're, you, well, I did put in, you could un unravel completely. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I actually, what, what actually, what I was sort of thinking after writing this paper is that it's sort of like philosophy actually gives us something to hold on to. I mean, these concepts are singularities that, that provide um, order. I mean, they're structuring, right? Concepts are structuring. So uh, it actually, out of that chaos of things that are happening in art and science and other places, what I'm thinking is that, you know, what can philosophy contribute? Well, in fact, what we contribute is, um, uh, you know, these, we, you know, we create these concepts out of components of meaning that are drawn from this durational whole of, of linguistic meaning that allow us to stabilize a new kind of perspective on something, right? So in fact, I guess I was sort of thinking that, that in an interesting way, uh, that those concepts, by virtue of our, you know, we're consistent, right? There's this kind of consistency. We, we care about how these things fit together, and we follow that. What can happen is to think of a concept as a metaphysical, you know, point that we can hang on to for dear life, right, as, as everything fluxes and changes. But what's, what I felt coming out of this was this sense of, but we create these little islands that last for this little bit of time, and they connect to other islands, and it allows us to sort of stabilize out of that uh, a new way of thinking for a time. And then when another, you know, uh, brilliant philosopher comes along and, you know, other things are happening in the, in the uh, world, uh, and other things are resonating with people, and we have other kinds of problems that are happening, then that begins to break down. We're, we're leaving that behind. It becomes old. It becomes stale. Those concepts that allowed us to feel more secure, then, you know, they fall away, right? And we move on to something else. So I think that's the image I was beginning to get, is that uh, this is actually philosophers have real work to do, right? That these things that, that happen in science, they're doing their thing, and the, and the artists are doing something else. But we actually can kind of bridge these, these things that are happening in different places in a way that gives us a little ground, you know, not real ground, <laughs> right? Heaven right? But, but something that, that, you know, a kind of, it's there for a little bit and it allows this new perspective to unfold. And then uh, the other thing that came to my mind, I, I was going to put in the title, you know, 3D philosophy, right? That, that it was 2D, right, two-dimensional, that you have a proposition and you, you, you know, unpack the inferences, right? But this is like 3D. We, we get into this durational hole and we sort of are refracting out things that allow us to get a little bit of ground in order to move on from there. So in a way, I guess that didn't come up for me because I was actually thinking of this as a means, right? As actually something that allows a kind of stability to form in a very different way, right? He's thinking it in a different way, which is part of what I find fascinating that, you know, uh, for someone who, you know, does post-structuralist thought and so forth, the big question in ethics and so forth was always, well, what do you do without a foundation, right? What kind of ethics can you have? Uh, in a non-foundational mode. I mean, once you, you know, get rid of those metaphysical uh, um, uh, uh, forms that we could hang on to, what are we supposed to do? And this, to me, actually seems to be 
um, moving towards a kind of answer to that question that things sort of form and, and then they are there for, for us to hold on to and, and to contour new ways of thinking and, and that something comes out of the chaos and then it shivers and it's gone, right? But, and we move on and we don't want to get too hooked. That's where the deadness comes in. That's where the cliches that, that weigh us down. I think it totally makes sense to really uh, emphasize that we need some cliches, right? And that Deleuze isn't, you know, he, he doesn't maybe acknowledge that as much as he could or should. But, but still, this way of thinking about um, uh, how reverberating with this kind of, you know, durational um, whole is different from, you know, a kind of foundational way of thinking about what philosophers are doing. So go forth and philosophize. <laughs> <laughs> See, we're all, we're, we, they need us out there. <laughs> Excess in thinking and the excess in material reality. Yeah. Um, I guess I see them as not. Uh, uh, I wouldn't separate them okay. like that, and that's really where I would go to. Um, that's why the bit from Austin about speech acts. That if you know language always happens in you know material. You know, there's all the material side to it, and it always comes out in those kinds of. Um, uh, you know what is what the term they use reciprocal presupposition of you know the uh, uh, collective uh, assemblages of enunciation and the what do they call it the machinic what's the other you know I'm just spacing on for the the thing side of it right those are in reciprocal presupposition so they're always um, uh, they're so we can, I can sort of uh, abstract out, talk about the durational whole of linguistic meaning, in other words, but it's never abstracted. You know, it's, it's always uh, totally in with the, with the material durations. So I, it would only be in a sort of uh, artificial way that you could talk about them in separation. That's what I would say, but I know that is. And, and yet each of them has a kind of excess over the other. That's kind of what I'm Right, so the excess, um, the excess is always that um, uh, we, 
Well, part of what I th am interested in, in in Deleuze is that I think you can talk about uh, conceptual categories, but I think you can also talk about, and this I think is, this is when you could go into neuroscience and so forth and sort of look at some interesting stuff there, that at a non-linguistic level there can be kind of categories too. Uh, that we could talk about how perceptual cliches, that's sort of what I'm referring to, that, that there's a way in which uh, we understand things in terms of past patterns uh, at, at like the cellular level or other levels. And so uh, that's where this notion of a soap bubble, right, that, that you know, the tick that sees, you know, feels the heat, you know, does whatever. But it's human beings, I mean, maybe that's how we're different from other animals, I don't know, but that actually can go beyond the kind of uh, rules of living that your body has generated. Uh, so I do see that as, as sort of similar. I mean, you know, I'm talking then uh, about them then in analogous ways. But, of course, as language speakers, uh, in this context of having bodies that have all these, you know, uh, uh, responses that are going on, we're also, um, um, you know, having, uh, uh, we're also creating meaning uh, in, in linguistic terms. But I see that as being in a, all together. And so the excess that what, what I find interesting about what Deleuze is doing there is to think that there could be an excess in perception, right, as well as an excess in, in thoughts, in thinking, that the body could actually operate in that way or that even subcellular parts or subsections of the body are, you know, um, operating in similar ways, right? Does that make sense? So that excess would be to, to get towards an ontological unconscious in both cases. <laughs>